Welcome to another episode of In the Area Podcast, your weekly source for wisdom nuggets. Today, we are joined by Murray Stahl. Murray is the CEO and chairman of Horizon Kinetics, an investment and research firm with billions of dollars under management. Murray was an early investor in Bitcoin, putting over $700,000 into Bitcoin in 2015 before it was cool to do. In this episode, you will learn a ton about economics, business, literature, and crypto. You do not want to miss it. Remember, as a listener of In The Area Podcast, you are a worm digging for nuggets of wisdom. So keep your ears peeled because we do collect a ton in this episode. I hope you enjoy. All right, Murray Stahl. Murray Stahl. Murray Stahl from Brooklyn, New York. From Brooklyn, New York. And you are the CEO of Horizon Kinetics, an investment firm. Is that correct? That is correct. And uh, that's a firm with 80 people. Can you explain exactly what Horizon Kinetics does? Yes, uh, we do a number of things. We invest money largely for wealthy individuals, although we have some institutions. We also write research. So you'll see that if you make inquiries, you'll see I've written a lot of stuff over the years. Quite a lot of stuff. Just about... As it pertains to investments or? As it pertains to investments and things that are not technically speaking investment things, but they you could say they're tangentially related. And I find the topics interesting and I write about them. Like what would be an example of a subject that is tangentially related to investments? Well, like how people got rich over time. So I wrote this book once called How They Did It. And it's all about how people didn't have a lot of money how they made themselves rich. And it's amazing. It's not like you think it was. Why did I decide to do it? Because in college, I had this experience. I took a course in economics, Economic 101. And I was unbelievably naive. And one example of my naivete at the time was, I believed economics was the study of how to make a lot of money. And I quickly realized this course is not about making a lot of money because they're telling me about how the economy fluctuates and IS and LM curves and things of that type. And one day in my naivete, I just asked the professor, I understand the need for teaching the basics, but how do you use this to make money? <laughs> and he told me quite properly that the object is not to make money. The object is to understand how the economy fluctuates. And I just... I couldn't comprehend, I couldn't grasp that. <laughs> I, could, I just couldn't grasp it. Oh, man, did you think you were in the wrong major after after that? No, I thought I, mean, I had the right major. I just had the wrong professor. Okay, okay, I get it. And so then you sought to understand how, how to make money. Well, no. I said, well, it must be, if I want to make money, I can't just listen to any economist. I said, I must listen to the great economists. So there's a course called The Great Economist. So I took that next. This is John Maynard Keynes. And um, and this is at the university, the, can you? Brooklyn College. Brooklyn College. So I decided to take this course, The Great Economist, Adam Smith and whatever. And with the exception of John Maynard Keynes, who actually did make a lot of money. No one else made a lot of money. It, it completely shocked me. As a matter of fact, The Economist, Ludwig von Mises, actually wrote an autobiography. So at one point in my desperation, I actually decided I'm going to get either biographies or autobiographies of the great economists and see what happened in their personal lives. Because the course was more about their theories. 
And I said, I understand the need for studying that, but how they make their money? That's why I'm in this course. So I began reading either their biographies or autobiographies where they wrote them. So John Maynard Keynes actually made a lot of money. He came very close to going bankrupt too, but he didn't make a lot of money. So you have to give him credit. How did he make money? He speculated in foreign currencies. And he was betting on the collapse of the German currency. And at first it wasn't collapsing. So he actually sold the German currency short. And then it ultimately did collapse. And he did it, he made a lot of money. So he became very wealthy. The others, not so much. So I hit a dead end when I encountered the autobiography of another economist called Ludwig von Mises. M-I-S-E-S. So he talks about the time that he was already an established economist, and he, was, and he wrote a book called Treatise on Money. So his wife, or his fiancée at that time, said, well, you wrote a treatise on money, you must have a lot of money. He says, no, <laughs> I don't have any money whatsoever. <laughs> and he really didn't. So she was astonished. She said, like me, she said, how can you write a treatise on money? You don't have any money. He says, you don't understand how it works. I, I theorize about money. I don't actually have money. Mm. Matter of fact, uh, th I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but they say in books that Karl Marx was considered to be an economist. They said his wife was famous. I don't know if this is a true story, but his wife was famous for the following remark. She said, if Karl had spent more time making, da making Das Kapital, instead of writing Das Kapital, the family would have been a lot better off. <laughs> okay, that's I don't know if that was actually said, wow. but that's the story. So you're, you're trying to learn all you can about these economists, how they make money, so that in the hopes that you will understand it and then you'll be able to make money in your own life? Right. Okay. And I'm not making very much progress. <laughs> okay. And I'm being sorely disappointed. <laughs> okay. But I keep digging. Wow. See, that's one of my characteristics is I just don't stop. So even that, being the CEO of a, of a company with 80 people, you're not making a lot of money? No, I'm now I make a lot. Oh, of money. now you okay? Now I'm I'm, I'm a college student. Okay, oh, as a college student. As okay, a college student. Would, did you find that helpful to learn how these other economists through time made money? Was that helpful in your progression? Uh, no, and the reason was is because, as I said, none of them made any money. So the only time I learned about it was so I became desperate at one point. So one day, I was just in a library, and I was looking for another biography on people making money. For example, I just read the biography of Irving Fisher. Irving Fisher, very important economist. He is the founder of what's called the quantity theory of money. And he actually made a lot of money. Trouble was, he lost it all in the Great Depression. So that's another uh, uh, variation on a theme. So it was another disappointment to me. He had it, but just couldn't hang on to it. And when he died, he didn't have a lot of money. And when I found the common denominator, the mall, whether I liked them or not, some I didn't care for very much, but they just had an interest in something. And they would pursue their interest, such as it was. And they would get very good at that, and they would use that. Basically, all business and economics is really based on information asymmetry. You have information that the public doesn't have. So you could either use it to buy something at a lower price than the public assesses that value. Or alternatively, you can literally sell that information to people who will buy that information. Hmm. Those are two pathways. So all the, the pathways to wealth, however it happened to be done, are really variations on that theme. Information asymmetry and pursuing your interests. That's right.
So sometimes people develop interests they didn't even know they had. So for example, the guy who started Paramount, Adolf Zukor, he founded Paramount. So you know what he was before he founded Paramount? He was in the fur business. He sold furs. So he knew nothing about films. Now, this is the beginning of the 20th century, so the film industry is just developing. So the film industry then was based on the Nickelodeon. So he had a nephew. The nephew wanted to rent a shop and have these Nickelodeon machines. So you see this three-minute video. You throw a nickel in the machine. That's what they call a Nickelodeon. And he wanted to borrow money from Adolf Zukor. So Adolf Zukor said, I don't know anything about Nickelodeons. I don't know if I should invest it. But my partner here, he actually goes to these places. So what we'll do is we'll come, because he didn't have a store, we'll come and take a look at one of these places. So the two of them go and take a look at one of these places. And he says to his partner, what do you think? He says, they got it all wrong. So the idea at the time was you want to get the lowest rent possible. But he says, it's completely wrong. They ought to go and put it in the most traffic street in New York City. Because everyone's walking in an impulse. They just see it. And they say, you know, I'll spend five minutes. I'll watch a video. And I'll throw a nickel in. So at that time, the biggest business street in Manhattan, this is circa 1903-4, this is the business street is 14th Street in Manhattan. So they decide to rent on 14th Street. And they're actually making a fortune. So all of a sudden he gets interested in, in movies, but he's really interested in people. What makes people, like what makes people buy a fur coat? Because it's very expensive. Is it related to what makes people go watch a, a movie, which is not a movie, it's only a three-minute video, in Nickelodeon? So he's thinking about people. And then he ends up in trouble. Why does he end up in trouble? Because they formed something called the Edison Trust. Edison, Thomas Edison, controlled all the patents on movies. So they, they weren't paying a royalty on the Nickelodeons. And they also weren't paying a royalty on the content. But if you paid the royalty, you could barely make any money. So they had to find a way to get around the royalty. So they realized there's no way around the royalty in America. So they decided they're going to go to France and see how does the movie industry work in France. So they knew nothing about movies. And they saw that there's a difference in the French movie industry than the American movie industry. The American movie industry at the time, this is before Charlie Chaplin, the way it worked is you did this little video, you hired no-name actors because you didn't want to pay them. So the idea of a, of a video was a novelty. In France, they see a movie theater. It's really a Nickelodeon. And there's a line around the block. So why is there a line around the block? And they're showing something called Queen Elizabeth. He says, who wants to hear about Queen Elizabeth? Well, I don't get it. And it's a silent movie. But they weren't coming to see the movie Queen Elizabeth. They were coming to see Sarah Bernhardt. Because Sarah Bernhardt was a star. So really what they want is they want name brand actors. And he got the idea. This is how I get around the trust. I'm going to go back to the United States, go back to New York, and go to a theatrical agency where they book actors, Jesse Lasky's um, agency. And I'm going I'm to book every Broadway star there is. And I'm going to put them on salary if I have something to perform or not. So I lock them all up. That was the beginning of what's called the studio system. 
wow. where they'd hire Cary Grant. They say, you're getting a salary even if you're not acting. So he locked up all the actors. He had a monopoly on the actors. And that was the story. That's how Paramount became Paramount. So I began to read things like this. I began to read about Bank of America, this guy A.P. Giannini, how he became very wealthy. And he had a completely different uh, way of looking at life. So he became wealthy really as a consequence of the 1905 San Francisco earthquake. See, the, the common denominator of all these people is they get an insight. And usually it's not about business. Usually it's about people and how they behave. This guy, A.P. Giannini, he owned this little tiny bank called the Bank of Italy in San Francisco. And he catered to Italian immigrants. And then they had the earthquake in 1905, wiped the city out. So people, it's not like today, but there's internet and banking. You can't get your money. Your money is in a safe under rubble. The bank is burned to the ground. How are people supposed to live? So he had some money in a safe, and he went to Fisherman's Wharf, and he said, I'll lend 10, I forget what it was, 10 or $20 to any person who wants money because you can't get it. $20 is a lot of money in 1905. He basically lent everybody money, so everybody owed him, and he changed the name of Bank of Italy to the Bank of America. And next thing you know, it's the Bank of America. Wow. Jeez. I know. It's just endless, endless stories. And these insights propelled you out, out of college. So I, you're still, you're studying this through college. And then do you know what your interest is by the time you graduate? Well, not really. I just want to get in something in the investment world. So the first job, you could say I didn't really achieve it. I just worked for Macy's. And you could say it's a business job. So if I want to glorify it, I'm really just a number cruncher. But um, if you want to glorify it, you could say I'm a statistician if you want to glorify it, which you probably should not. But let's glorify it just for the heck of glorifying. So, and really it deals with inventory because that's what a retailer is all about. But I knew even then, sooner or later, computers are going to take over inventory. So it's not a skill that I really am going to be able to do anything with. So I ended up getting a job at Bankers Trust, which eventually became part of the Deutsche Bank. But at that time, it was independent. And turned out I was in the investment department. But the same thing, I'm a number cruncher, but at a very low level. But then, ultimately, I became an analyst. Then I became a fund manager. So that's how I... When, when you say number crunching, can you, can you explain what that might mean? Well, you would calculate the return on a portfolio. You tried to explain statistically why a portfolio either did well or didn't do well that kind of thing, how much risk the portfolio was taking if you're going to be a little more sophisticated. And you understood the parameters that you needed to crunch around? Like, okay, here we have we have a portfolio. I know that it's going to return X percent per year. We don't know. It's not, it's not prognosticating. It's not looking forward. It's looking backward. In other words, what did it do, not what will it do? Mm. That's was the, because the, this is, Largely the pre-computer era. And for you, are you mental math, or do you need to write things down and use calculators? Generally speaking, I can do it mentally. Okay. So I found it very easy to absorb the math that I needed to have. I didn't. I found it very intuitively easy. Hmm. And there were some books there that I was able to read, and what I didn't know, I very very quickly picked up. And what was your routine like? 
routine like at that time? Would you go into your job in, in the morning, you know, early and then come back and read books or, or were you networking outside of your, outside of your job? Well, I wasn't networking so much cause you didn't have great many networking opportunities, but I was reading a lot. So on the way in, I'm on the subway and I'm reading one of these books, sometimes a biography or autobiography of people. Then I, I greatly expanded my scope of autobiographical reading. So instead of just reading about someone who made a lot of money, I became addicted to it. And I'd, re- I'd read anything. Anybody who did anything, they'd, they could be a cook. I didn't even care. I just wanted to hear their story. They could be a cook. They could be a soldier. They could be an actor. I really didn't care what they did. Wow. So, for example, I'd read Julia Child's autobiography. And what I found is, no matter what they did, you could say, in one sense, their success was accidental, but in another sense, it really wasn't. It was they had the interest in it. So Julia Child, for example, what does it have to do with making money? Well, actually, she made a lot of money. Who was Julia Child again? For Julia Child was the first person who popularized the United States um, French cooking. Hmm. And for many years, probably a couple of decades, she had the foremost cooking show on television. So it was Julia Child. It was the book of all books at the time. The book on French cooking, she would do on PBS. She had a show cooking with Julia Child or French cooking with Julia Child, things like that. She was enormously popular in the 70s and 80s. And she died at a ripe old age, made a lot of money. And her whole story was, at the end of World War II, her husband worked for the United States State Department. And they just sent him to Paris. That's where he is. So he's in the embassy all day, and she's got nothing to do. So she wants to do something. And they had no children. So she wanted to register, she wanted to learn how to cook. And she went to register at the Cordon Bleu, the famous cooking school. And they wouldn't let her in. And the reason they wouldn't let her in because she didn't have the prerequisites. Normally, you're a sous chef for a lot of years. So you know a lot about it. And she has no background whatsoever. So she finally talked them into it on the theory that she could never get a degree. She could take the courses, but she wouldn't matriculate. And they never give her a degree. But she actually learned very well. And then she started to make her own discoveries in cooking. She just loved cooking. So, for example, to make real French bread, you have to have a special oven. And it's what you find in a bakery. The average person really couldn't make French bread. And she found a way to do it. She found a way to take the standard oven you would have in your kitchen and get it to the right temperature. So what she did is she took floor tiles, like ceramic floor tiles, and she put it in the oven so it would absorb the heat because it has to be a certain temperature. You can never get a, a regular you know, retail kind of oven to that temperature. So she figured it out. So many other things. So professors started getting very impressed. And eventually they gave her a degree. That led her to meet another woman. She was going to be assistant on writing a French cookbook. And this woman decided she didn't want to write a French cookbook. So Julia Child took it over. Mm. And she was so interested and came up with so many innovative recipes that it became a bestseller. And then she got a show and then she became a celebrity. And it's amazing. Somebody who just has an interest in things. Wow. So she really took off. She took off. So you're you're surrounding yourselves with, with with books. What are what are a few books to get people started on this uh, on this book reading diet that you would like to that you think were foundational for you and would be useful for anyone to read? 
Okay, well, I'll just do my just my favorites that I've read many times. I very there was a guy, no one's ever heard of this person, this person, Fitzroy McLean. He was an explorer slash soldier slash adventurer. He wrote a book called Eastern Approaches. No one's ever heard of it. But it's a, in the field, it's a classic. It's all about from the years 1930-odd to maybe 1945. He's exploring the world. He's involved in the war. He's a commando, even though he's an older guy. And, um, you know, he walks around Russia and Stalinist Russia. And you're not allowed to go anywhere, but he does it anyway. <laughs> and, he, and he learned to speak Russian, obviously. Just interesting, interesting kind of person. And there's certain schwa de vivre in that book that I just found very captivating. Mm. So he just got interested. He got interested in Eastern Europe. And he became an expert in Eastern Europe. So he's very useful in that regard. Then, you know, classic, you know, Winston Churchill. You have to read, you know, Winston Churchill, My Early Life, or The Memoirs of the Second World War, or some of the other books. Like, he says things in there that are just priceless, totally priceless. And he was another one of these people that, you know, if he would have died in 1939, he would have been a footnote in history. People would have thought he was a failure. But he just, it, it is true about him, he just wouldn't give up. He just kept, he just kept at it. And he rose himself to great heights. So I thought, you know, I think everybody should read that. And yet, you would think a person on that level, it, 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 there's a certain humility in that book that's really amazing. Because he talked about his early schooling. So he, he, he talks about he's in school, and he says he thinks he knows a lot. So he says, when he took the exams, I wanted so much to show to people what I knew, but they always insisted and asked me questions about things that I did not know. Hmm. <laughs> so, and the, the, the whole philosophy goes through the book. Matter of fact, he tells the story of he's in the Boer War, you know, the turn of the 19th to 20th century, and he is, um, he's a military correspondent, and he gets captured. So he says, I'm a military correspondent. I'm not really a soldier. You have to let me go. And they won't let him go. So he writes a letter to his captors. And he says, since I'm a military correspondent, he actually wrote this letter. And the people have copies of it. The, since I'm a military correspondent, not a soldier, you have no right to incarcerate me. And since you won't let me go, I've decided to escape. He writes him a letter like that. And he says, since my preparations are well underway, I do not expect to have the opportunity of seeing you again. <laughs> he says, but I think in general, apart from this, your, your um, behavior has been quite proper and correct. And we'll certainly mention it to the authorities upon my return to London. You know, sincerely yours, Winston Churchill. And he actually escaped. Wow. Yeah. And they were pretty upset about it. Jeez. But they didn't catch him after that. No. He was, they he didn't, escaped. They didn't catch him. So his whole life is a series of escapades like that. Wow. These zany, wild kind of escapades <laughs> like that. So these two books were, were foundational for you. That and the, autobi the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin... That's another one that I would say is foundational. That's, it's written in the, this is written 200 years before Churchill, but it has the Churchillian spirit, if you want to call it that. In a way, it's a little bit more zany. And you would think it's Benjamin Franklin. Uh, but it's incredibly witty. And that's one of the things that, it, the reason I mentioned those three books 
the faculty of every one of those people is they have the ability to laugh at themselves. So looking back in their lives, saying, you know, what a fool I was. <laughs> I, did I didn't know what I was doing. And wow. so everything they did in life, they could see the sense of humor in it. Mm. So they didn't get the, the, they thought the condition of trying and failing is a normal condition. You don't get discouraged. You pick yourself up and you think about what you did wrong. You, you have at it again. And they had that faculty. And that's one of the most amazing faculties that I realized they don't teach that in school. So somebody takes a course and they fail it. It's almost like having the mark of Cain in you. But reality, you can learn it. Just because you failed it doesn't mean you can't master the material. It just means you have to try harder. And I think the school system doesn't really embrace that concept. And I think mm. they really should. Resilience or grit. Yeah, you have to have that. And anyway, the, when you read about all these people, generally speaking, they don't have anything handed to them. You would think they would, but they don't. And they end up, you know, being very successful. Then you have people who they inherit a lot of money and never do anything with it. There's that as well. Mm. So how did you go from your job at the bank to founding your own business? Was, did you do it right after? Was that the next job that you had after the bank? Yeah, that was, I only had two jobs, really, if you want to look at it. If you don't count Macy's, there's the bank. I say the bank 16 years. And at the end of, towards the end of 1994, I kind of got the idea, you know, I should do this on my own. And I was able to talk a couple of partners into doing it. With me. What made you think that you could do it alone? Was it, did you see that the, the bank was doing it wrong or did you see? No, I mean, look, every, no two people ever see any issue the exact same way. So you're always going to have differences. Um, I didn't really have, nothing I would say is significant. It's just that I got to the point where I said the issue is not making a lot of money. I said the issue is I just want to spend a day the way I want to spend a day. I had no real major disagree with them other than, you know, there is the procedures of the bank. You got to do it a certain way. You got to go to certain meetings. You have to spend a certain amount of day in administration. And I said, wouldn't it be great? I said to my colleagues, who are still my partners, we're still together. Um, basically, wouldn't it be great if we could kind of just hang out together and do whatever we want? That's basically what it was. We just hang out together. And so the ambition wasn't to make a lot of money. The ambition was, we'll just make a lot, enough money to live a reasonable middle-class life, and we don't care about the rest. And do you share that ambition? And everybody kind of agreed. And this way, we would, we'd just be able to hang out together and have a lot of fun. Wow. That's, that's really what did it. Wow. And did it play out that way? Was it as much fun as you were hoping it would be? Well, yes and no. See, the yes part of it ultimately became very successful. We actually made a lot of money, and we did have a lot of fun. The bad part of it was we wrote this business plan and it was in two parts. The first part was all the things that we need to worry about and pay attention to. And the rest, second part was all the things that, it's not that, that important. We got to get to it. And it was right in the following sense that all the things we thought weren't important were very important. All the things we thought, we were, thought were important they didn't even matter. So we started off and it didn't look like it was going to, it was going to work. But we were able to, you know, whatever we weren't doing right, we were able to very quickly fix it. And then it started working. So it didn't take that long, really. 
you guys were able to identify the problems, and then once you identified them, you acted on them. That's right. We we acted on them. Um, matter of fact, my partners they said when it's it's kind of a compliment. So I said I thought about it. I said we really need to do this, and then I just started doing it. And a couple of them said, you know what's amazing? You think about the problem, and you think you have a solution, and you just do it. I said, what's amazing about that? They said, well, no one does that. <laughs> they think they actually they meant it as a comment. They said they think about a solution, they have a solution, but they just don't do it. Mm. So you you were more of the executor type. Once you once you identified it, you would do it. I do it. Like if I had the confidence that it's going to work, I'm doing it. At what point? How many years after you guys founded that business did you start to realize that this is actually going to sustain itself? This is successful. I would say. Six months after we started. Six months Maybe in. seven, but I think it was really six. So it took, caught on pretty fast. Right. I would say the first 60 or 90 days, I wasn't sure. And, but we started it in November. So let's say up to a certain day in January, I wasn't so sure. Mm. But part of it was, I didn't think we were doing everything right. Part of it was just normal pains of you're just setting it up. It's new. You don't really know what's going to happen. Was there something that you know now that you wish you knew when you were first starting it? No, because if you know too much, you'll be too scared. You won't do it. Because you're always going to encounter problems. And you'll be too frightened. So I, 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 in retrospect, I say the ignorance was a real benefit. Because I didn't realize what can go wrong. So I didn't really worry about it. Mm. Had I realized all the bad things could happen, I might not have ever done it. Wow. And was that another realization too? Because you talked about from these books, the, the people weren't successful from thinking about how they were going to be successful with theorizing. They, they were successful from doing it. That's right. Was, do you think by you starting the business, that was an example of you applying what you had learned from reading yeah, books? That, but then you're in the circumstance and no matter how much you read, your circumstance is a unique circumstance. And you have to, after a certain point, you have to develop your own identity and come up with your own solutions to various problems. Did you come from a place of money? No. My father didn't have any money. That's for 100% sure. What was it like growing up for you? What was the lifestyle like? Uh, I would say the, the netherworld. We didn't have a lot of money. And it was, you know, it, money was tight. I wouldn't say... We were starving or anything. I would say money was very tight. My parents didn't make a lot of money. My mother was a seamstress. And my father, basically, he did have a job in a bank, but at a very low kind of level. And was, were those experiences as a child, was it like, okay, I know, I, I know that for myself, I want to be in a place that's more comfortable than this. Was it, was it from that place that you wanted to make money? No, I didn't. I didn't care about the comforts. See, and my father didn't care about them either. Always about it was, for me it was always about the money was not for comfort. The money was for freedom. So that's what I really wanted. I wanted the ability to do what I felt like doing. I didn't want anyone telling me what to do. I never liked it. So I just wanted independence. So what I didn't like about the world was that's why the only thing I didn't like about business was it's not that it was so onerous. It's just, okay, it's nine o'clock. This is where you're going to be. You're going to go to this meeting and you're going to sit there and we're going to talk about something. It might be very important from their point of view. It's just that I have no interest in it whatsoever. 
I have something to contribute maybe, but I'm a little tiny contribution. And I got to sit there until my turn comes. And I didn't like that. I just wanted to. I said I could be sitting here and I could be doing something I'm interested in. But I can't because I'm working for a living and I have to do what they, what they tell me to do. Wow. Has making money ultimately given you the freedom that you so desired? Yeah. So if I feel like writing something, so for example, this is a good example. I wrote reports at Bankers Trust too, but it had to be to the point. You want to write about a company, you write about a company. But if you want to write about B.T. Barnum got rich, how does that help the bank? We don't want you to write about that. And they're right. But I want to write about it. <laughs> I just want to do it. <laughs> I understand. I mean, their objection is completely reasonable. Right, right. But, but, so I have, no, I have no problem with it other than the fact that I just want to do what I want to do. Wow. Man, and you're also interested in cryptography, yeah, right? Can you talk about that interest of yours and maybe how that developed? Well, ultimately, it came into the field of cryptocurrency. We ultimately became pretty big in that. So we get investing in cryptocurrency. Horizon Kinetics. Yeah, invest in cryptocurrency. So we became pretty big in it. In what year did you guys start? In the cryptocurrency, 2015. Pretty early on. Pretty early. So basically, all I, I would read these books about cryptocurrency, breaking codes and spies and all that kind of stuff. I just found it interesting. As a kid? As an adult. As an adult? As an adult. I do it to this day. I just found it intriguing. I never did it professionally. I just read books about it. I just found it intriguing how they're able to, you know, break the code, how British intelligence break, broke the German Enigma code, how they pulled it off, and without computers, really. I just found it interesting how they figured it out, that kind of stuff. So the only thing I knew about cryptocurrency pre-2015 was the word cryptocurrency has crypto in it. I it must have something to do with cryptography and the name Bitcoin. Other than that, I knew zero. That my, was my whole knowledge. Says, I want to read about this. So I printed out these three papers from the internet about cryptocurrency. I had no idea if they were valuable or not. I just want to start somewhere. So I sat in my desk in my office in Manhattan. Every day I came in and I want to read this. And every day I just never got to it. I got to talk to people, I got to meet the people, and I just never had the time to it. And one day I decided, I don't care. Today I'm closing a door. And I don't care if it takes the whole day, I'm going to read these papers. So the first paper was on something called the Byzantine Generals problem, which is a famous problem in mathematics. So I won't go into it in detail, but basically what it involves is you're the commanding general, and you have five generals to report to you. And to win the battle and attack the enemy, all your generals have to attack simultaneously. But you know one of them is a traitor. But you don't know which one it is. So the problem is, how do you get them to act in concert in such a way that you can actually trust them, knowing one of them is a traitor? It's a problem in mathematics, basically. And I had heard of the problem, because it's called the problem of trustless proof. And I didn't think there was a solution. So I read this paper, and somebody proposed a solution. It actually worked. I said, well, that's actually pretty cool. It doesn't tell you much about cryptocurrency, but I, I thought it was actually pretty cool. Whoa. Is there, can you distill maybe the solution into a few words? <laughs> Or, uh, it's too long. Okay, and, there's and not verbally. There's not an easy way. Not to, an easy way. It's, okay. it's too. It's just too lengthy. But if if the listeners would like to read into it, what they should look up trustless. They can either look up trustless proof, 
or they look up Byzantine generals problem on Wikipedia. Okay. So like you can read a couple of paragraphs. See, the reason is if you read a Wikipedia, it'll give you a general sense of what it is, but unless you know some higher mathematics, you won't understand it. But you can read the verbiage. You get a sense of what it's all about. Mm. Anyway, so then another one was on trustless proof, but not as elaborate. And I read that. I said, that's pretty cool too. The third paper is what changed everything. So it described what Bitcoin was. What I was looking for, I wasn't really interested in trustless proof. I was interested in Bitcoin. What does that have to do with cryptocurrency? I didn't understand it. So this, it described exactly, now I'll go into detail because this is actually much more intriguing and much more relevant. So I didn't understand the point of Bitcoin. Like, what's the point? I said, so this is green paper in my pocket. What's wrong with that? Why, can, why do I need Bitcoin? It's just a bit. And the fact that it's just a bit, that's the whole point, as you'll see in a moment. So in regular money, the green stuff in your pocket, the central bank, the Federal Reserve, is always printing up more money. The more money you print, less purchasing power your money has. That's called debasement. Your money is being debased. So you put your money in the bank, and it's all guaranteed. You put $1,000 there, and maybe five years now you want to you spend it. Except it doesn't buy $1,000 worth of stuff. It might buy $700 of stuff. The longer you leave it in there, the less purchasing power you have. So if you're a saver, you're just an average person. You're saving money. How do you do that? You're saving for your college, for your kids, or for your retirement, or whatever it is. How do you do that if your money is losing purchasing power constantly? It's a huge problem. And no one ever had an answer to it. But in Bitcoin, the idea is the money is fixed. There's 21 million units eventually. Right now, there's 18.7 million units. And there'll be 21 million units from the current 18.7 in the year 2140. Not 2040, 2140. So the rate of inflation is going to be very, very low. So now, a lot of people had that idea and you'll understand why now trustless proofs. Let's say I, years ago, had this idea. Okay, I understand the basement. That's pretty easy to understand. <clears throat> so I come up with my currency. And I say it's going to be 21 million units, and it's never going to be more. How do you know you can trust me? How do you know that I didn't really create 22 million units, and I put, took a million for myself? Maybe I'm just a crook. Maybe I'm just a liar. So to make that certain you need something called a blockchain. So what's a blockchain? A blockchain is just a ledger. Everybody knows what a ledger is. You go to a bank, you deposit $100. There's a ledger there. Even if it's a computerized, it's a ledger. The difference is you can look at the ledger. You're looking at your own account. The bank employees can look at it, but no one else can look at it. The blockchain ledger, everybody in the plant can look at it. Even if you don't own Bitcoin, anybody who wants to can look at it you'll see these account numbers called addresses. The only thing they don't know is, they don't know it's your account. They just see a number, and they see a certain number of coins there. They just don't know it's you. So you have what's called the public key. The public key is your identifier. Then there's a private key. The private key is your code to get access to your money. Kind of like your password, but a little more elaborate. So in 1977... An, an economist by the name of Friedrich Hayek wrote a book called Denationalization of Money. The 70s, of course, is the period when you have a lot of inflation. <clears throat> and he said, you're never going to conquer the inflation 
unless you get control of the money supply. But you can't get control of the money supply. The central banks have control of the money supply. So no matter how much people hate inflation, if the central banks feel like printing up money, you can't stop them. They don't get elected. You can't, you know, remove them from office. They're there, and they have the power, and they're going to do what they want to do. So he said, the only way around it is you got to come up with, a, with private money. But then he has, he ran into a problem. The problem was the authentication problem. Yes, yeah, somebody can make up their own money, and they pledge they're not going to print up anymore, but how do you know they're not lying? But then they mentioned the blockchain, and it can be authenticated because you have millions of eyeballs on it, checking it. So I, when I read that, I said, wait a second, denationalization of money? I read that book. You know, you like you read a book years ago. You say, where the heck is that book? And you look in your bookshelf to find I found it. And I said, I get it. I really get this. So I decided, I got to buy this. So next morning is what's called the research meeting, where all the, the investment professionals gather in a room. I'm the head of the company. I'm the chairman. And I tell them what I'm doing. So I walk in there, and I say, I'm buying Bitcoin. They all look at me like I've lost my marbles. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said, they say, you can't buy Bitcoin. It's unsecure, it's un and it's, it, it's a fraud. And it's, what is it? It's, a, it's just a bit. I'll describe the bit part of it in a second. Just a bit. What are you buying? It's a bit. And I said, yeah, but it's my money. I want to buy it. I don't care. It's my money. It's not your I'm buying it. And I did. <laughs> How much? How much Bitcoin did you guys buy? Uh, just for, for openers, we bought about um, about $700,000 worth. And at that, at that time, in 2015? Yeah. Which might, I mean, it's worth like 150 times more. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. <laughs> like, so, I mean, $700,000. You take $700,000, it's serious money. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> you, I can understand you took $70. You want to yeah. have a flyer, but you're taking, yeah, I'm taking $700,000 and I'm buying this. Wow. Was that number arbitrary, the $700,000, or was that a total percentage of? Well, it was a percent of a portfolio, a certain percentage of a portfolio I had then. I'm, I said, I'm prepared to lose seven. It even goes to zero. I'm prepared to lose $700,000. I don't even care. I think this is so great. I'm buying this. They think I lost my mind. And I'm buying this. Wow. So now, the, one of the objections, which is the, one of the obvious objections, which needs to be addressed, what are you buying? I can understand you buy a stock. They make it's. They have. They make computers. They make food. They make railroad equipment. They make steel. Okay, I can understand it could be worth more or less, but it's a company. You buy a bond. Okay, it's a treasury bond. It's guaranteed by the government. Get a certain amount of interest. At the end, the maturity will give you money back. What, what's there? It's a bit. What are you analyzing? It's just a bit. What is a computer bit? It's nothing. So I said, you're missing the whole point. It. it that's the point. That's nothing. It's almost like Seinfeld. <laughs> it's a show about that's nothing. the point. Yeah, you were doing a stand-up routine in front of your company. <laughs> and that's I, but in my mind, I'm saying this, and I mean it seriously, but I'm thinking about Seinfeld. Wow. Because I, I'm thinking in my mind, I sound like Seinfeld. Said, that's the point. It's, it's, it has nothing there. That's what you're buying. Nothing. You're wow. buying a finite amount of nothing because it's only 20 million, 21 million units. It's a wow. finite amount of nothing. So I, they said, well, how can that be worth anything? I said, because take the money system. 
if you really want to learn about money, you go on the website of Federal Reserve, or you get any of these textbooks. Like I have some over there. I'll, I'll pull one out. I'll show it to you. It's like nothing but equations, like partial derivatives and vector algebra. And all. So maybe there's a fraction, a tiny fraction, 1% of the people who can understand it. They can't understand it whatsoever. So how can a money system be fair if 99.99% of the population has no idea what it's about? They don't know how it works. But the idea of Bitcoin, there's a certain simple number of rules that anybody, regardless of your education level, maybe five minutes, 10 minutes the max, you can master all the rules. It's 21 million units. A coin, coins are issued every 10 minutes in a certain quantity. And every four years, it's what's called the halving. They reduce by half or 50% the amount of coins in issuance. And by the year 2140, you get to 21 million. And you know what, how many issued now, you know what the blockchain is. That's it. That's all you have to know. So the issue is, why would people choose to use regular money, which we call fiat currency? Fiat from the Latin, let it be. Because they're just decreeing this is money. But they keep printing up more of it. This, everybody knows there won't be any more. So there's something called Gresham's Law. It was, it's an economic law stayed in the 16th century by a person by the name of Thomas Gresham, and basically it says, bad money drives out good. What does that mean in English? It means that you want to buy something. So let's say you have a dollar bill, and you have a dollar worth of gold. And you know the government's printing up a lot of money, so your money is losing its value. Which are you going to spend? Are you going to spend a dollar in paper, or are you going to spend the gold coin? You'll spend a dollar. So people will hoard the thing of value, the thing that's fixed. So the theory was they'll hoard the bit. And ultimately, there's something called law, law of no arbitrage. I'm sorry for being technical. Like So far, it's been very colloquial, but I'm getting a little technical because I want people to understand that it's not just like Seinfeld. There's actually some serious thought went into it. So the law of no arbitrage says that two quantities that represent the same thing should have equivalent value. It's like if you had two shares of IBM. And it's the same right to a company. They should trade at the same price. They should trade at a different price. Sometimes two shares actually, for technical reasons, do trade at a different price. And the word arbitrage refers to you're going to sell the expensive one and buy the cheap one. So I say, well, this is the cheap money. Because Bitcoin should have the sa at least the same value, I would argue more value, than all the money in the world. So let's add up all the money in the world. The amount of money in the world is constantly increasing. Every day they're creating more money. So why shouldn't Bitcoin, these 21 million units, be worth at least as much as all the money in the world? So I said, it's not just the dollar, the Canadian dollar, the British sterling, the euro, the Danish kroner, the Russian ruble, and so on and so forth. So I say, if you take a currency that is considered to be unstable or untrustworthy, let's say the Brazilian real, they call the, the Ries, actually, the Brazilian Ries. And they're always printing up more money. Nobody trusts that currency. So shouldn't Bitcoin be worth at least the Brazilian currency? They say, well, I guess maybe. I said, no worse than that. Brazilian currency is worth $780 billion. So you take $780 billion, divide by 21 million. Bitcoin's got to be worth at least that. 
So what about the Iranian currency? That's called the rial. Why isn't add that to it? Do you, they're constantly printing up money. Why shouldn't it be worth what the Brazilian currency is worth and the, the Iranian currency? And why not the Venezuelan currency, the Bolivar? You keep doing that. You say, so what do I care about the dollar? Just take all the currencies that you know are dysfunctional, and if it's just that, you get to some insane value. But the advanced countries, or what they call the advanced countries, they're doing the same stuff. They keep printing up money. So why shouldn't you add in all the currencies? And be adding all the currencies and then allow for the fact they keep increasing the units outstanding, meaning the dollars and issuance. You get to some crazy value. So why would intelligent people prefer this paper, which is constantly being debased, to this thing, which is not being debased? So I think they're going to prefer this. So I bought it. That was that was the reasoning at the time. And at the time, you had run through this logic that you just explained now. Yeah, because once I got that book off the shelf, Denationalization of Money, I had read the book already. Do they reference that in the white papers? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why I knew. I said, they, they referred to this book. I said, wow, they're referring to Hayek's book. I got to get that book off the shelf. And I started looking at it. I said, this solves the, author, the authentication problem. Hayek was stumped, it was, it was stumped by the authentication problem. What do you do? How do you know you can trust private money? There's no control. And this is the proof that I said, if the blockchain works, then it's, however, the blockchain is much bigger than just the currency because the blockchain is a ledger that's unhackable. So you say, what's well, just a computer? Why isn't it hackable? Think of it this way. There's some database, people hack things all the time. How can they get in? Well, there's, there are these firewalls that demand authentication, like a password. So if you have a powerful enough computer and you can change your IP address, you can keep trying to get in and eventually, you're going to hit. Now, you might program a computer. There's a certain protocol for passwords. So you know it's not just random. You can eliminate a lot of possibilities. That's basically, simplistically, how they get in. And once they're in, they can do all this kind of stuff. Now, imagine this hypothetical company was able to employ a million people. They say these million people are going to be logged onto the machine constantly and looking at the basic at the system control level, and they see anything that looks odd to us, we're going to flag. And we have this way of balancing out the money. So if any money disappears, if somebody's credit card number is out of alignment, if, if it's accessed for anything other than a valid IP address, we're seeing it in real time. We'll just push a button and shut that down. So we actually had a million people. And let's say there was XYZ Bank, and they could afford a million employees just looking at it 24-7, it's never going to be hacked because it's got too many security guards. Same concept is if you had the money is in a vault, theoretically somebody can break in. But what if you had an army with two million armed soldiers? Is someone really going to break in? Not right, not likely. Same concept. So the blockchain has millions of people doing the same balancing calculation to find out how many coins need to be there and what transactions are valid and which ones are invalid. People are constantly doing these calculations every minute of the day. So in order to defeat them, you have to have some incredible amount of parsing power. And even then, you're not guaranteed. It just you have a, a, you have a fighting chance. 
So if you actually, if you actually did that, you spend so much money, what's the point of hacking it? You spend more money than you're likely to get out of the thing. And even if you were successful, you have so much processing power, there could only be a few people that could ever have that much processing power, you'd be instantaneously identified. And they'd catch you. Therefore, it's unhackable. So I said, it's better money, and it's a better system, because it maintains security. This has got to win. So I said, I'm doing this. This is a great idea. I'm doing this. I don't care. And I did it. Wow. What, what, did, what did people at other financial institutions who you shared your investment with say to you at the time? Well, let me just tell you one thing before I answer the question. So not only did I did it, then I wrote papers advertising it, telling people I did it. So it wasn't like I shared it with them in the verbal sense. I said, I'm going to write it up, why I did it, and send it out to everybody. And, and did you see someone else do this before you too? Is that what got you initially interested? Like, no, was there- no. That basically, the only thing I had ever seen about, other than the name Bitcoin and the word cryptocurrency, occasionally you'd find people being on CNBC and they'd say, they ask them, what is this Bitcoin? And they say, it's for lunatics. <laughs> they said, they didn't do anything people would say. they say, like, people were out of their minds. Everybody would say that. They didn't do it every day, but occasionally it would come up, like in the kind of like when they would do a show, the special interest part of it. They'd say, okay, getting off the mainline economic topics, they'd say to somebody, what do you think of Bitcoin? And they all say, I think they lost their minds. And they bring in very famous people, like great investors, say like, what is it? It's nothing. <laughs> like, what are they buying? There's no point to the whole thing. It's just crazy. Why are they doing this? They didn't. So they would say nothing good about it. So the consensus clearly was, you have to lose your mind doing this. So I decided, I'm going to tell everybody I did it. I'm not ashamed. And I told everybody. And people they were horrified because they're saying, you, believe, you, you have write these papers about you're looking for value. And I said, it's the ultimate value because it can't be debased. It's the greatest value you could ever have. But I say, but how can it be value if there's nothing there? I said, but nothing, nothing is the ultimate value. <laughs> wow. So we're really talking across purposes. Anyway, the debate gradually changed because... They kept saying, it's going to crash, it's going to crash. And it would have its periods of crash, but they didn't understand why it crashed. They thought people are giving up on it. But they didn't understand what's called the economics of mining. See, mining is the process of validating all the transactions. So encourage you to validate the transactions. They give you a reward, which is called the block reward. And that's the coins that are issued every 10 minutes. You get a piece of that. So the next thing I did, which is even crazier, I said, I got to mine. Because I said, it's great because you're, you're creating your own money. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, you're validating transactions, but you get money back. So it's like, and it's new money. You're like, it's like you're printing up money. I said, I have to do this. <laughs> so I need the equipment to do it. So they, said, so they said, where do you get the equipment? I said, the only place you can get it right now is the People's Republic of China. So I found those people, I contacted them, and I said, I want to buy equipment. And I, I want to buy $250,000 worth of equipment. Okay, send, to, send us $250,000. <laughs> and I did it. And even now, <laughs> for a minute, I said, what am I doing? <laughs> I'm sending a quarter million dollars 
to China. Like, what if they don't give me the equipment? What am I going to do? I'm going to sue them? What, can, what is my recourse? I have no recourse. Wow. But I'm doing it. I don't care. So I'm ordering equipment from China. It came in about three weeks. And they said, what are you doing? You're sending money to China. How do you know you're going to get it? I said, I don't know. I said, but I'm taking a chance. I'm going to do it. And I got the equipment back. So I got, this is a footnote in it, but you'll find it amusing. I get this equipment. So it's basically servers. It's machines. It looked like miniature computers. Maybe like six times the size of that box on a table. That's how big they are. And one of them wasn't working properly. So it's a warranty. So I thought, what do I do? I said, I'm going to send it back uh, under warranty. And they're looking at me. You're sending this thing back. <laughs> this is a miracle you got the equipment. <laughs> now you're going you're gonna to send this, ship this thing back there. And like, they're going to fix it for you and send it back. I said, I think they're going to do it. <laughs> so I sent it. And then a couple of days later, I forgot all about it because every single person told me, you're never going to see that ever again. You just wasted your time. They're going to get back. They're going to laugh at you. And two months later, I actually came back to the United States. They fixed it. They really did. So you started mining. Yeah, I started mining and creating coins. And I made that into a business. You set, did you set that up in your office? Where did you put the, all the well, equipment? Well, you, you, can, you can plug it in for about 10 minutes. You can't set it up in your office. And there are two reasons. The first reason is it makes a tremendous amount of noise. So if you want to know what it sounds like, one machine, imagine you're sitting in an office and you have 10 commercial vacuum cleaners on simultaneously. That's what it sounds like. So you have 100 machines, you go deaf. And so nobody near you is going to tolerate that. And secondly, it creates an awful amount of heat. So you want a place that's cold. Because so you go to, you, so you have to find a place like that's cold where like it's, a, it's a, a abandoned warehouse or something. And you go there and you say, I would like to rent this warehouse. And even the people own it, they're saying, well, do you realize no, there's no heat in there? So we don't need any heat. <laughs> That's not our problem. We have all the heat we need. We don't need heat. Wow. We just need an outlet. It's, you know, so you have to, you have to go to utility and get a transformer. The reason you need a transformer is because you're buying tremendous quantities of electric power and you have to step it down to the level that the machine can take. You can't run, you know, 750,000 volts through one of these machines. So the transformer has stepped them down. Wow. But you were so convinced at the time that this is what you should be doing, that you didn't mind going to the utility company, going to the warehouse. Yeah, well, what I did is I found other people to help me. I found other crazy people <laughs> that were willing to work with me. Wow. So I hired other people. Some hiring people do this. To run, to run the mines? Yeah, to run the mines. I'm, I'm hiring other people to do this stuff. Other people who are as crazy as I am. Wow. Did you start, did you continue to buy more equipment and expand? Yeah, gradually. Now, capacity? you don't want to buy too much equipment. And the reason is, well, two reasons. The first reason is easy to understand. The second one is a little more complicated. The technology is always changing. You never know when you're on the tail end of a technology. So if you buy a lot of equipment, and what if next month they come up with something better, you have relatively obsolete equipment. You want to buy a little bit at a time. Not a lot. And the second reason is, which I referred to tangentially, I'll go into a little more detail now, is something called the having, 
which is the block reward every four years, gets cut in half. So unless the price goes up, which you don't know, a Bitcoin that it's going to go up, your revenue could actually go down. So you need to be ever mindful that you stay on the, the developing side of technology so you can get to keep your power costs going lower and lower constantly. You need to constantly go lower. Wow. And are you convinced to this day that the price of Bitcoin is going to rise? Absolutely. Totally convinced of it. Now they have, believe it or not, there's 10,000 cryptocurrencies. Do you, do you read into the other currencies? Yeah, I obviously guess? I can't read 10,000. And I own some of the other cryptocurrencies. Like Ethereum and... Like Ethereum. I, owned, I, I even mine some Ethereum. But I don't believe Ethereum is going to beat Bitcoin, nor has it so far. And there's a lot of, we can go into it if you like, but there are a lot of reasons why I don't believe Ethereum is going to triumph over Bitcoin. Hmm. And are there any other coins that you think are interesting? Well, this is what's called Ethereum Classic. That we can get into a little technicalities if you want. So Ethereum is what's called a fork. What does that mean, a fork? So in the year 2016, there was a dispute in Ethereum. So Ethereum, the attraction of Ethereum is they have something called the smart contract. So it's considered to be much higher technology. And when people think about technology, this is a point beyond just Ethereum. I'll get back on the Ethereum in a second. But when think about, think about technology, so okay, Bitcoin doesn't have smart contracts. And Ethereum does. So why isn't Ethereum better? Well, what they don't understand is about crypto. There's no closed source about crypto. Everything is open source. There are no secrets in crypto. So the code of Bitcoin, it's not like Google. You don't know what their code is. In Bitcoin, you know every line of code. Even Ethereum, you know every line of code. So people like smart contracts. They can modify Bitcoin and make smart contracts if they want it. There's no proprietary technology. In other words, everything you do is out in the open. The reason it has to be that way because it's decentralized. You know, if anybody gets control of the technology, then it's centralized and they can make their own rules and you're back to central banking the way it is right now. So it has to be open. So with Ethereum, in 2016, they had a problem. They had a smart contract. Someone didn't hack Ethereum, but they hacked their way into the smart contract. Why? Because the smart contract doesn't have millions of eyeballs on it. Like if you and I made a contract, Nobody has interest in looking at it other than you and I. We wrote the code relevant to our needs. But if we were a little sloppy, a third party might show up and hack it and take the money that we put there in escrow. So that's what got hacked. So then became a dispute. If there's a smart contract that gets hacked, it's a philosophical dispute. They had a practical solution. What should happen? We just let it go, because that's the blockchain. It got written to the blockchain. The blockchain is supposed to be immutable. Or are we going to undo the transaction? Meaning we, the core developers, we're just going to do it and not let this guy get away with it. The majority of people said, we're going to undo it. We're not going to let this guy get away with that. He hacked a smart contract. We're going to basically pull the money from the person and make everything right. The majority of people said that's the right thing. But that's a problem. Now, to this day, so there was a dispute immediately, and this day it's still the same dispute. Which one is right? Should you just leave it alone? Because if it's decentralized, who is anybody to say what the rules are? 
you had a smart contract, you screwed up. It doesn't, you didn't hack the system, just hack the smart contract. Next time, be more careful. But if somebody decides what's right and what's wrong, it's the road to, the road to centralization. Anyway, most of the people went with Ethereum. So they forked it. They took the code of Ethereum and they basically modified it with this one little thing to say, we have the right to take this thing back. So there's Ethereum Classic, the original coin, and there's Ethereum. So one of the issues today is Ethereum wants to change the protocol in other ways, which I'll describe if you want me to. But right now, let's just say, to make it easy, they want to change the code. Who wants to change the code? A couple of core developers. So are you going to let them run the thing? Because if you do, that's centralized. And they want to force everybody to go along with their protocol. So my thing is, if it's so great, why do you have to force everybody? Why wouldn't they willingly do it? So there's a possibility that they don't accept it, they'll go back to Ethereum Classic. And that'll be the coin of choice, not Ethereum. Right now, Ethereum is worth more than Ethereum Classic. So it's almost like a short bet on the development of Ethereum? Well, it, Ethereum Classic is that maybe people will ultimately reject Ethereum in favor of Ethereum Classic, which was the original coin anyway. Hmm. There's a case to be made that might happen. Now, to make it just a little bit more complex, you'll see that coins don't really compete. Let's just say, whatever it is, you really like Ethereum. Does that mean you have to abandon Bitcoin? No. First of all, everything is open source. So what you can do is, you can take Ethereum coin, and you like these smart contracts, you can paste electronically, of course, a Bitcoin on top of it. Now, Bitcoin will trade in the Ethereum system. If you want a smart contract, you can have a smart contract. So these things are not exclusive to each other, if that's comprehensible. Mm -hmm. Like you're saying cross-chain? You can cross-chain them, yes. That's exactly the term they use. You can have cross-chains. Mm. So the, the Bitcoin, they have something called wrapped Bitcoin. It's on the ERC-20 token. Which is? Ethereum. Mm. And then there's all, yeah, it gets going down the, the crypto wormhole. And then there's like swaps. I was trying to understand. What, all kinds of things. It, it's a discussion that go on for years. Right. Years. Now, do you think blockchain, this like public ledger that you're describing that everyone has access to is going to transform society? Yes. In just a multitude of ways. Because there is no information asymmetry. You see, I talked about somebody gets really good at something. They have more knowledge than somebody else. The basis of modern commerce is information asymmetry. Some people know about things that other people don't know about. A fairer society is everybody has the same information or at least has access to the same information. Maybe they won't ultimately use it, but they could use it if they want to. So the idea of the blockchain, <clears throat> you can see what everybody's doing. Everybody. You can't do that in stocks. You don't know who's selling a certain stock and buying a certain stock. In crypto, you can. You can see who's hoarding it, who's selling it, who's trading it day by day. You don't know their names, but you can see what's happening. Well, and do you think blockchain will find its way into all different markets, not yeah. just finance? Well, like, for example, take inventory of just any kind of thing. You, could it, you can blockchain it, meaning you could attach a fraction of a coin like every box of something or every whatever, and you could track it. So things can be trackable. 
So in a way, we invested in a company called Diamond Standard that's actually doing that. So what they've done is they figured out every diamond is, is unique, but they found a way statistically of getting lots of diamonds, not lots in the sense of many, lot in the sense of a grouping, in that sense of the word lot. You take a bunch of diamonds, and you create these little piles, and every one statistically is the same. They're the same as a group, clarity, luster, color, <coughs> excuse me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they put them in coins, and they're tracked. And now you can take the diamond world and you can make it into a heterogeneous asset class, a homogeneous asset class. That means that a person, if they want to, could invest in diamonds and they don't have to worry, I bought the wrong diamond. I want to put my money into diamonds because I think it's going to have value in the future. You buy one of these coins, everyone is identical. So you don't have to trust the system. Your knowledge is equal to everybody else's knowledge. And that's the whole essence of blockchain. Well... Voting, for example, will be in the blockchain. So everybody can see exactly what happened. There'll be no disputes about who won an election. Do you think that blockchain and cryptocurrencies are the most tra transformative force in society right now? Yes. So what it really does is, it's more than just a blockchain. Because one of the things that you have to look for it, so historically, people lived in societies, communities. So they could be countries, they could be subsets of countries. You have certain groups of people, they tend to live together, or they congregate, they have clubs, groupings, whatever. In the world of crypto, people from every conceivable group, every conceivable group that you could ever imagine, are talking to every other conceivable group, because they have a common interest. So no longer are they encapsulated. All kinds of people are talking to all kinds of other people, because they have common interests and they're sharing knowledge with one another. So one of the things about the blockchain is the knowledge of the world could be on the blockchain. It's an incredibly transformative force. So let's say, I'll, I'll give you some examples. <clears throat> let's take Google. Right now, you go on Google, you search for whatever you're searching for, and Google's making money off you. Because whatever you want advertisers will pay to reach you. Now let's imagine that your searches doesn't go to the Google database. So whatever you're searching for, whatever it happens to be, it's going to the blockchain. So everybody can see the advertisers. Someone's searching for something and they say, oh, look, this is number 57. This person is looking at things that I want. But instead of contacting Google and say, I want the information on 57, sell it to me, they got to contact you. And they'll say, do you mind if I advertise to you? Like, I'll give you a pop-up ad as a pedestrian example. You say, I don't mind, but you're going to have to pay me 25 cents every time you do it. And let's say it's worth it to them. Well, now you have an income stream that's totally independent of your employment prospects. You're just searching on Google. You now became an independent person. So, for example, you could have a person who's not very wealthy, but they're spending a lot of money. So you could say, how is it possible for a person who is not very wealthy to be spending a lot of money? Well, there are ailments, for example, let's say like diabetes. You can lead a normal life with diabetes, but you got to get medical care, and it's actually very expensive. So you have insurance that covers that, let's say. So you're leading a reasonably normal life. Well, there are all kinds of products they want to sell to these people, and you as a consumer, you make those decisions, the insurance company pays. Google gets the revenue. You're actually a very, very lucrative target for them.
You don't realize it, but you're spending a tremendous amount of money. So now instead of contacting Google, they're going to contact you. Do you want to buy the insulin pen, for example? Do you want to buy this? Do you want to buy that? Whatever they're selling to you. You say, fine, I will consider those things. Just pay me 25 cents, whatever number you decide. So now you're demonetizing Google instead of Google demonetizing you. You are getting all that revenue. So you were never really a wealthy person, and you have this disease, and now you're actually a high-spending person. You're very desirable, and you have this income coming in. You're like a mini Google. But that's only possible through a blockchain technology. That's right. So now, all of a sudden, the, the social income dynamics have changed in just a mind-boggling way. Because anybody can make money. You don't have to be dependent upon the goodwill of somebody to employ you. The mere fact that you exist, you can have an income stream. Wow. So how transformative is that? Mm. That income stream will go with you wherever you travel in the world because you're still you. And by the way, you don't have to be 18 years old. You don't have to be anything. Similarly, you, a simple thing, you write a song. So you play your song. You can do it video. You could just do audio. It goes on the blockchain. Anybody wants to listen to it? Maybe you give it like a free 20-second sample. Anybody wants to listen to it? They make a payment to your blockchain account. You don't need a media company. How many people are in the arts? And they can't get paid. I mean, most of the people in the arts, it's a very hard life. Now they can get paid. It could be you wrote a novel. It could be you painted a picture. It could be whatever you decide to be. Same thing with scientific research. You don't have to publish it in a peer-reviewed journal. You're putting it in a blockchain. Someone wants to read it, they can read it. If they like it, you can say, pay me money if you like it, like Patreon has. You could do that. Or you can even charge people if you want that. It's up to you. So it's cutting out the middlemen. and Cutting out. So everybody, Google, Facebook, all these companies, even Netflix, they are the intermediaries. Somebody makes a movie, and the only way you can see it is you got to go on Netflix, or maybe some of the other services they have right now, but you need an intermediary. But if somebody made a movie, why do you need an intermediary if it's on the blockchain? Maybe to help distribute it to the right, get in front of the right people. But with the internet, if the information is available, the blockchain, you see who the right people are. Who are the right people? People watch movies of that genre. So let's say you made a mystery movie. Okay, so you know the public keys of everybody who likes to watch mystery movies. You'll say, okay, I want to search the blockchain. I want to know how many people watch mystery movies more than 10 hours a month. Let's say that's your criteria. These are the people. And I'm going to contact them. What do you need? What do you need? So you see, that's the whole thing. Why do you need somebody to distribute? Because of information asymmetry. Because they know who the right people are. If you know who the right people are, you do it yourself. But they don't share that information with you. Mm. But what if the information were available to everybody? So now you see the power. You could be a college student. And you have a skill at something. Whatever it happens to be. And you are totally empowered to find your market and develop your product as you see fit. Just that alone. By the way, you don't have to be in college if you don't want to be. Matter of fact, even the whole concept of college. Let's say you want to be a mathematician. 
and you got to go to college and get a degree. And you say, why do I need even a degree? Why do I have to go to Harvard? I just have mathematical knowledge. So you can have a, somebody who has, a, who has, let's say, something on a blockchain says, if they were a trusted, they were a trusted person, said, I'll just, give you, I'll just give you examinations on calculus, let's say. If you pass it, I will certify that you know math. And somebody who wants to engage in mathematical services who just referenced me because I've tested you, what do you need Harvard for? And pay $80,000 a year. All you really want to know is math. Wow. So the more you think about it and you think of most of the businesses in society are adva taking advantage of information asymmetry. They have access to information that the average person just doesn't have access to information. And therefore, you need them. But if everybody accesses the same information, it's all on blockchain, then you don't need them at all. And it liberates people in just incredible ways. Wow. Sounds like freedom. It is freedom. That's why, that's why it's such a big... So when I, when I read, I said, I said, this is unbelievable. The more I thought about it, I sat and thought about it for a couple of hours. I said, this is just so mind-boggling. I got to be in this. This is something I got to be part of. Wow. See if I lost it to the last penny. I don't care. I got to be part of this thing. Where do you get your information about what's coming up next? Do you use... Do you have like a, a media source that you prefer to read from to, to learn and stay abreast of the latest developments? Well, no, I'm actually doing it every day. So I'm doing it. And there are people that I interface with. They're also doing it. We just talk to each other. Now, have you sold the Bitcoin that you purchased initially? No. We'll not sell it. People ask me that question all the time. You know, you made a lot of money. Why don't you take your profit? <laughs> because what's ultimately going to happen is this. One Bitcoin is not going to be worth $40,000. It's going to be worth $40 million one day. And when it develops, you're going to, have a, you're going to get interest on your Bitcoin. You're going to lend it out. So you're going to get the interest on it. It won't be controlled interest like the central bank. It'll be market-developed interest. So you'll get 6% or 7% or 8%. Just the income alone will be unbelievable. So to that person listening to this podcast, they have, let's say, $1,000 that they have as discretionary money, where would, what do you think would be the best utilization of that money? Well, I would say take $900, put in Bitcoin. I would say take $50 and buy the bit, what's called the Bitcoin forks, Bitcoin cash, let's say, and take the balance of the money. I would buy Ethereum classic and buy Litecoin. I keep a few other coins for now. That's what, maybe a year from now, there'll be other things that I'm interested in and I would change it. But for now, that's what And I don't sell. Do not sell. Just hang on to it. And if you, you know, you got to prepare to lose the whole thousand dollars. Man. But you could be a billionaire. So you think about the whole value of every Bitcoin in the world, if you add it up, it's about $750 million. Billion, not million, billion dollars. The value of all the monetary assets in the world is probably 700 trillion, 700 quadrillion dollars. And it's constantly growing. So eventually, the crypto has to be worth whatever the monetary assets are worth. In a couple of years, the monetary assets will be worth, you know, in the quintillions. 
and eventually the crypto will be worth in the quintillions and you'll make thousands of times your money literally thousands of times your money and there's you don't foresee another crypto coming into the space dominating the market taking market share that we just doesn't even exist right now well it doesn't work that way you see people always ask that question because a new crypto comes in with a better technology why wouldn't displace it because there is no proprietary technology in crypto so somebody comes up with new technology their code is open to all so people in bitcoin say oh it's interesting came up with some new feature we'll do that i'll just modify the code there is no proprietary technology. You may say, well, why can't they keep it secret? Well, they kept it secret. That means they're in control. And that's the whole thing. You got to think of it in terms of the internet. There's Web 1.0, Web 2.0, eventually going to be Web 3.0. Web 1.0 was a bunch of people got together and hooked up their machines to each other in different countries, let's say, and they're communicating with each other. It's very unsophisticated by our standards today. Web 2.0 is we regularized and standardized. We came up with applications to enable us to effortlessly and seamlessly communicate with each other. Facebook, let's say, WhatsApp, um, uh, Google, uh, Gmail, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is that now you have a handful of companies that control the system. So they're reading your emails, they're reading your text, they're, they're, they're monitoring every conceivable thing you do, including your location, where you are, because they want to know what you're doing. And then... If you say something that they don't approve of, they'll just shut you down. So you, so you say, well, I don't like that. A lot of people don't like it. Now, maybe they should like it. That you, that's a debate. But they don't. So they don't, like the, they don't like that, and they don't like the idea that they're being monetized. So if you think about Facebook, ultimately, why does anybody go on Facebook? Is there content there. Facebook doesn't create the content. You create the content. But they get the money. So you think about it. What kind of system is that? Collectively, a billion and a half people are putting content on Facebook. And Facebook gets the money. If they thought about it, they'd say, That's, there's something wrong with that. Why shouldn't those people get the money? So the only way they can get the money is if the system is decentralized. So the balance of power, the terms of trade shift to the average person. So they're not displacing anything. I like this. I like this version of the future. A lot of people like it. So what they say is Web 3.0 is not going to be, right? Web 3.0 is not going to be centralized anymore. It's going to be a different database architecture of the whole web that nobody's going to be able to control it. And crypto and the blockchain is a big part of that. So for young people today looking to be prepared for the future, do you think they should go online and read more about blockchain? Or is there another market or a subject that you think people today should be should verse themselves in? Well, I would say definitely blockchain, crypto. It, it, some, it's, it should, we're just starting. So if you want to put baseball terminology, we're not in the first inning. We're... The pitcher is in the bullpen, just started, but still has a jacket on, just warming up. That's where we are. They haven't even played the national anthem yet. That's where we are in crypto. It's the possibilities are just unbelievably limitless because it truly will transform society. In addition to which, anybody who tries it, it'll transform their life in just unbelievable ways. I would say that. And I would also say 
that because it's bringing people together, they should either learn different languages or learn about different cultures. And the reason is because people are going to be brought together in ways that right now are just inconceivable. Like we think about their countries or subsets where you have two different cultures, you know, coexisting in a country and maybe they, there's conflict there, that that's not going to happen because we're used to, you grow up in a certain area and your people are the people you grew up with. But now you're going to grow up with people who don't even live in the same continent. So you may never talk to the person across the street, but the person across the ocean, you may talk to them every day. <laughs> so that's the thing. You, you got to get your arms around that. It's a completely different planet. And as such, it leads to a much more flattened, less hierarchical structure in society. All, all societies are hierarchies. It could be the king or the dictator or the president or the prime minister, and then there are a bunch of ministers, and then there are deputy ministers, and there's this hierarchy of people. And the problem with that is everybody within the hierarchy has this narrow, circumscribed area of knowledge. But sometimes we all have to work together because nobody can master everything. So it wouldn't be great in a complicated subject if a lot of people can opine. But a hierarchical structure doesn't lend itself to that. But a flat structure, like in the blockchain world, it does lend itself to that. So I understand needs, some things are national security, you gotta kept secret or whatever, but not everything has to be kept secret. So let's say, because it's topical now, there's some ailment. Okay, and there's millions of doctors in the world. Why shouldn't we let them all opine? They're licensed. What's your experience? What works in treating this disease? Does anything work? Does some things work better than other things? And why do we have to get all our information from just one person, however qualified and talented that person might be? It's just one doctor, when there are millions of doctors. If you thought about it, why do we have to just hear from one doctor? Why can't we hear from all the other doctors? I mean, if you went to a doctor, you didn't feel good, you might get a second opinion, even a third opinion. So why on a societal thing, you only have one opinion? <laughs> and, I mean, if you think about it, you say, my shoulder hurts, and you went to a doctor and they told you you need a certain kind of treatment, you say, I want to get a second opinion, and no one would be offended or think you're doing something wrong. Right. But in, in the field, in this field, you want a second opinion, and it's actually a big deal. <laughs> why should it be? Well, in the blockchain world, it wouldn't have to be. So, for example, if you had an x-ray of your shoulder, you might contact some doctor who lives on the other side of the planet and say, this is my shoulder, what do you think of that? And they'll give you an opinion. Now, maybe it's not good advice, maybe it is. Eventually, people develop a reputation for being trusted or not. Are they trustworthy or not trustworthy? And you'll know. That's how transformative this thing is. So it, it basically, it means, I would call it, the increased information quotient of society, meaning you're reducing information asymmetry. It's like one of the greatest things that ever happened to civilization. So people can really, you know, they're going to they're gonna be amazed at what's possible. Wow. Well, and how do you, Murray, see yourself and your role in this transformation? 
I'm just a little guy. I'm just messing around with the blockchain, doing my mining. I write articles constantly on crypto. You know, um, uh, people can read them if they want. Some are on the web. I, you know, I collected them in in like um, in paper-bound books. I actually give them out to people for free. I could probably sell them and make a lot of money, but I just give them out to people for free because I want to spread the knowledge. Wow. And just more generally, outside of just decentralization, what would your advice to young people today be just in order to orient them their lives for the future? I would say whatever problems, because, you know, you're a young person, you're starting out in life, and yeah, you start with a bunch of questions. What do you do for a living? Am I going to get married? Who should I marry? Uh, when should I be married? Am I going to have kids? Where am I going to live? Where am I, should I own a house? Should I get an apartment? You know, should I go to college? Should I drop out? Should I study this? Should I study that? And the first message is, you're not the first person that had that problem. You're about the six billionth person that had that problem. So the first thing to do is, you want to read about the experiences of other people who had similar problems to you. What did they do? You don't have to reinvent the wheel. So whatever it is you're having a problem with, take my word for it, in the college library, there's more autobiographies than you could ever read that dealing with specifically what your problem is, whatever it happens to be, and find out what they did. And they had, they had advice. Some of it you'll find very useful. Other, it maybe won't be, other advice maybe won't be that useful. But seek those people out. They're not alive anymore. But they live through their books. So that knowledge should never be lost. Now you go into the college library, you'll see you'll blow the dust off the book because no one's reading it. But you'll read it and you'll see this actually should, is useful to people. It's also inspiring. So, because there are people you'll find that worse problems than you have. And somehow they triumph over. So, I'll give you an example. So, the first um, uh, African American black general, General Benjamin O. Davis, you read his autobiography, he went to West Point. And it was pretty racist that era. When he was at West Point, nobody would talk to him. They wouldn't talk to him. They didn't want him there, but they couldn't get him out for reasons I want to ruin to you. You got to read ruin for you. You got to read the book. Nobody would talk to him. Now put yourself in that. But what would you do if that happened to you? That you're in this school where theoretically it's supposed to be a lot of camaraderie, and nobody will talk to you. They won't even look at you. You're like a non-person. Like you don't even exist. How would you react? So people get upset. There's somebody in their dorm that doesn't like them. And it's like a trauma. What would you do if nobody liked you in the whole school? Teachers, students, everybody. Everybody didn't like you. What would you do? How would you be able to deal with that? And you'll see he was able to deal with it. So it's unbelievably inspiring when you see people like that, that dealt with that. So that's why I say, whatever problem you, and there are people who had worse problems than him. Whatever problem people have, there are people who had you know, 10 times worse problem. You know, go into a few more examples like this. Ones that you, people heard of, just I don't want to mention people that they didn't hear of. It sounds too exotic, but let's say. So General Charles de Gaulle, you read his memoirs. And who was that? Charles de Gaulle was the, the head of what's called Free France. In World War II, France, France surrendered. So he ordered everybody to lay down their arms. 
So he says, I'm not surrendering. What do you mean not surrendering? <laughs> the order came down, we're all surrendering. So he says, I'm not surrendering. I'm going to London. I'm going to carry on the struggle. They said, but the whole army is surrendering. He said, I don't care. I'm not surrendering. I will never surrender. Like Churchill in a way. So he makes a speech. Of course, it's in French, but his famous you know, motto is, France may have lost a battle, but France hasn't lost a war. And the memoirs, the first paragraph, you see the way he's a very inspiring guy in that he says, I always had a certain vision of France. Always had a certain vision in my mind. There's a certain France. France doesn't surrender. It's not what France does. And he really believed in it. So there are people that really believe in stuff. And you'd be amazed when you devote yourself to something, the kinds of things you can accomplish. So he refused to surrender. They sentenced him to death in absentia, of course. So imagine... Whatever problem you have, they didn't sentence you to death. <laughs> I mean, I understand they could do very bad things to you, but they didn't sentence you. This guy, they sentenced him to death. And I'll give you more, you want more profound example. I'll give you another. There's one of my favorite books. It's not a fun book to read. It's just an interesting book to read. Simon Wiesenthal, the guy who was the Nazi hunter, he wrote a book called The Sunflower. It's a very profound book. So the other books I mentioned... Or inspiring. This is inspiring too, but it's inspiring in a very different way. So I'll tell the story. The book is divided into three parts. Part one is a story. He was in the concentration camp, and he was obviously almost killed, but he survived. And in the camp, he had an experience. The experience was there was somebody who was in the SS. And next to the camp, they had a military hospital. And this guy got injured in some way, and he was infected, and he was going to die of sepsis. He knew he was going to die. And he had done all these horrendous things. So he began thinking, am I going to go to heaven or not? He says, I want to be pardoned. So his, his wish to the doctors, they were SS doctors, get me somebody from the camp, bring him over here, put him in my room, and I'm going to tell him everything I did. And I'll ask him forgiveness, and he'll forgive me, and I'll go to heaven, because I'll be absolved of my sins. So he did it. So the person they took was Simon Wiesenthal. So they brought him into the room. And the first part actually is really a question. So if you were in that situation, and you know your chances of survival are, between, are very, very slim. So he tells you the story, and he's in the bed, and he's suffering. You're in the room with him, and he can barely speak. That's how bad his condition is. And he says, this is, I did all these horrible things. Please forgive me. Would you forgive him? Or would you say, no, I'm not going to forgive you. I will never forgive you. So he actually said, I'm going to die anyway. They kill me today. What do I care? They shoot me today, shoot me tomorrow. It doesn't matter. So he said, no, I do not forgive you. I will not forgive you. You want to order me executed? I don't care. I'll be executed. I'm going to die anyway. I don't care. So that's the thing in the first part of the book, the section one. The only other detail, because it leads you into section two, they had to name and address, like in the old hospitals, military hospitals, they have a name and address of the person on the bed. Set so when they die, you know, they can send the body where it has to go or notify the next kin. So he, he memorized the name and address. Why? Because he survived. And... When he recovered, he wanted to go visit 
the family to see what kind of, you know what this guy did, what kind of family, I just care, what kind of family would raise somebody like this? So he met them and met the mom. He says, this is actually a lovely woman, a very nice person. So she says, did you know my son? Yeah, I knew your son. I didn't know him that well. He, he didn't have the heart to tell her. She didn't know what, his son, what her son had done. He didn't have the heart to tell her. So I knew him. I didn't know him that well, but he just seemed like a nice sort of guy. He just let it go. That's part two of the book. He tells his experiences, meeting the mom. It's so much worse than meeting this. So much, a different experience, not worse, but a different experience for meeting the son. Then comes part three, which is the most profound part of the book. So he writes a summary of parts one and two in the form of a letter that basically summarizes in a page and a half. Takes that letter. This book is written circa 1960. He writes this letter to the 50 people at the time who were known as the foremost philosophers and theologians of, let's say, circa 1960. I don't know if it's exactly 1960, but approximately that year. And, and asked the question to them, poses the question to them. Did I do the right thing in forgiving him and not forgiving him? Or did I do the wrong thing? Maybe I should have forgiven him. What is your advice to me? Ex post facto, because obviously I can't do anything about it right now. And he sent it to 50 people. And the interesting thing is how these people answered him because he's putting them on the spot. So why is he putting them on the spot? And you learn a lot about life, just reading their responses. On the one hand, because you're in college and you think that your knowledge and your sensibilities are so inferior to these great thinkers and philosophers you're encountering in college. But now you're encountering them, the same people you encounter in college from their books, but at a completely different level. They finally got a practical problem. The same people you're reading about. They give them a practical, what should I do? So 49 gave the following answer, because they're in a spot. If they say, you did the right thing, you shouldn't forgive him, well, it's bad because everybody can be forgiven. We can all get better. On the other hand, if you actually say that, you know, you lost your family, that you almost died, you saw all these horrible things, and you say, yeah, I forgive you, it's okay. Let's move on. How can you tell somebody that went through experience like that that you just forgive them? So they said... They're walking the fine line. Generally, as a generalization, people f could be forgiven, but I can understand why you wouldn't forgive them. So it's not, not really, it's not an opinion. It's sort of avoiding the question. Only one philosopher said, you're the right thing. You shouldn't have forgiven. <laughs> Only one person said that. So it's really very interesting to read it. So what you're learning about is, you're learning about the, these great minds that you encounter in university, they're really not necessarily so great minds, that the great minds are really the average person that you're reading about in these autobiographies, that they accomplish great things, or way some one person said it, I don't remember who, they said there's no such thing as great people. There's only great things that have to be done, and there's only little people that have to do it because there's nobody else. And I thought that was a very profound remark. So what you'll see is there are these little people, and they rise to the occasion. So when you read books, let's say, heroism, someone risked their life to save somebody else. You would think, if you took them all in aggregate, these are the most caring, loving people who love humanity, who write these books, but they never do that. Just some guy who, in daily life, is actually not even such a nice person. <laughs> it's actually is, is abrupt. 
and <laughs> argumentative, and they're not even that charming, really. And they risk their life for someone. And then they get interviewed in a book. And they say, look, you risked your life to save some person you didn't even know. Why did you do that? And they always give the same answer. Say, I don't know. I've been thinking about 40 years. I have no idea why I did it. I just felt it was the right thing to do at that moment. I just couldn't let that happen. So the people you think would be the most moral are not necessarily the most moral. It's kind of like when you encounter people, don't judge a book by its cover. Like you never know about people. Like after a while, you get a sense of who you can count on and who you can't count on. Now, in your daily life, you can only meet so many people. So you're in college, how many people, it's a big dorm, but you're not going to know most of the people there. You don't have time for them. You know a handful of people. It's a tiny subset of the great vast uh, population called humanity. So you can't get to know most people, but you can get to know many, many more people through their biographies and autobiographies. So you get a lot of life experiences in the sense that they tell you about their mistakes. You don't want to repeat them. So you learn from them. Or wait, one of the people said in their memoirs, this is Otto von Bismarck. He said, you know, um, they say that people learn from mistakes. He says, only an idiot learns from mistakes. A smart person learns from somebody else's mistakes. Mm, and I thought that was actually pretty good. Wow. Man, well, Murray, was there anything else that you wanted to add to the podcast before we close out? No, I think I hope I covered a lot of ground. Thank you so much for sitting down with us because the amount of value and the insights that you were able to share with us are truly incredible. That's absolute well, wisdom. Thank you so much. You're very kind. I hope, uh, you know, I can live up to it. I, tr I, I absolutely believe it. And uh, I refer to my listeners as worms. We're, we're on a quest to collect wisdom nuggets and I know we collected a lot of them with you. So Murray, thank okay, you. Well, thanks so much. I enjoyed doing it. Thank you.